Rebecca Katz, welcome to the new school. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> you are many things, a consultant, speaker, teacher, chef. Um, you work with patients, physicians, nurses, and wellness professionals to include uh, the powerful tools of flavor and nutrition in their medical arsenal. You're a graduate of the Natural Gourmet Institute for Health and the Culinary Arts in New York, uh, where you worked with Anne-Marie Corbin. Um, and you have a master's in health and nutrition. Uh, you are, uh, in addition to being the founder of the Healing Kitchens Institute at Commonweal, uh, you are also executive chef and faculty on the Food as Medicine uh, conference at, at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine with Jim Gordon. And you're on the faculty at the Center for Integrative Medicine in Tucson with Andrew Weil, who wrote the introduction to the Longevity Kitchen. Um, and you have, uh, you've done three cookbooks. The most recent, which we're here to talk about today, is The Longevity Kitchen, Satisfying Big Flavor Recipes Featuring Top 16 Age-Busting Power Foods. Uh, Rebecca Katz and Matt Adelson are the co-authors with the introduction by Andrew Weil. But before that, you wrote a really astonishing book, uh, well, two astonishing books. The earliest one was called One Bite at a Time, uh, Nourishing Recipes for People with Cancer Survivors and Their Caregivers, uh, again with Matt Adelson and Marsha Tomasi. And then you wrote The Cancer-Fighting Kitchen, Nourishing Big Flavor Recipes for Cancer Treatment and Recovery, which is incredibly widely used in the cancer community now. And, um, and what, what you really have done is to bring together a very serious grounding in the science of nutrition uh, with a deep respect for the wisdom traditions of cooking and then a, an astonishing, joyful commitment to what you call the power of yum. And so, you know, Rebecca, I'm not a, a, I'm not a cookbook reader. But I got to tell you, my wife, Cheryl, who's a very good cook, uh, has been cooking out of your recipe books for some time. And so I've just been enjoying the food. And, um, <laughs> but I sat down this morning um, to read through um, the Longevity Kitchen. I was saying to you before we began, I think this may change my approach to cooking for myself. Because Cheryl doesn't cook all the time. I cook for myself. And I eat a really healthy, healthy diet. But, you know, it's always the same. It's like quinoa, blueberries, almonds, and almond milk for breakfast. And then one of the things from the co-op for lunch, you know, the, whatever the, what are those things called? The, the tamales for lunch. See how much I know about nutrition. The tamales for lunch. I have tamales for lunch. And then for dinner, you know, uh, you know a salad and some fish or something like that. But I'm a creature of habit. So I eat the same thing all the time, you know? But I began reading this, and, and what it made me want to do was, was expand, was try to cook some of this stuff myself, because it was easy enough to cook that I could imagine cooking some of it. And, um, and it's unbelievably... Wonderful and amazing. I mean, I'm sorry to be so enthusiastic about it, but it's, <laughs> it's just really wonderful. It's just a fabulous cookbook. So let me start with this question. How did you come to Commonweal? 
I came to Commonweal. It's a great story, actually. Um, I was cooking in a kitchen in Mendocino, in a restaurant kitchen, and I had just moved from the East Coast, basically, because I had gotten an internship at the Chopra Center for Wellbeing when it was in La Jolla. And um, Anne-Marie Colvin said, what are you even thinking about? Just pack up your car and go. And so the East Coast girl stops at the Chopra Center, and I was there cooking with that executive chef for six months. And it was an unbelievable experience. It really exposed me to the world of taste and flavor. And the wall in the kitchen when you walk in was like a painting, but it was all spices. Wow. And so... When you say spices, you mean little jars? Of jars of spices lining wow. the walls. Yeah. It was just like, wow. And... Um, and they were so welcoming. And there was so much opportunity to learn, not only about Ayurveda cooking, but how it really translates beyond the Indian tradition, how it translates just into everybody's life. Um, but then I got my first job offer in this kind of this kitchen in Mendocino, California, and it was like a combination between Northern Exposure, Twin Peaks, and Peyton Place. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for the midgets to (laughs) knock on the door. And I, you know, I was, I was like, there were these beautiful biodynamic gardens. I mean, it was like it was like truly being in paradise, but kind of a little bit of a dark underbelly. But like, so the gardeners would come in every day with just these baskets of beautiful food, mm-hmm. and um, as a chef, we got to you know sit with the gardeners and go through the seed books and say, "This is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want." And I called it my culinary boot camp. Mm. And I worked like 17, 18-hour days. Good Lord. And um, I had many crying fits in the Mm walk-in, you know. (laughs) And um, it was very challenging. Mm -hmm. But it really prepared me. Mm -hmm. Um, How long did you work there? I worked there for two years. Wow. And during that, I know, I look back on that and I go... Oh, I, re- <laughs> I really, you know, got my chops. Yeah. So during uh, kind of, I think, the winding up, I got a call from Waz Thomas. Wow. Who's in this room. The coordinator of the Cancer Help Program at that time. Absolutely. And the spirit heart of Commonweal. Yes. Yeah. And, and I had heard about Commonweal Actually, in 1987, when um, I saw Bill Moyer's Healing in the Mind, and of course, I was very familiar with that book and the show, and of course, I knew about Commonweal from The Natural Gourmet, where I studied, and so this was like I was making a grilled Mediterranean gazpacho soup, and um, and I... And so one of the cooks handed me the phone, and Waz has this 
very distinctive voice and it's very deep and it's so, it's sort of like god called <laughs> and so i thought you know what i've got to take my vegetables off the grill and go outside and i was sitting on the back steps of the kitchen it's like you know where were you when right right so um at he said listen we have a little uh uh, we have a. Uh, we need you to come and fill in, if you're available. Well, of, as a cook in the as, cancer as help a, program, as a cook in the cancer help program, it was a September retreat, and it was like, you know, it, it was like I got the call, <laughs> <laughs> so I scratched myself off my restaurant schedule. I told everybody they had to behave themselves because it was like running a pirate ship. And um, I loaded up my little Volvo with all my needs and I came out to Commonweal. And I remember the first night I was here, um, I came early because I needed to go to the farmer's market and get everything ready. And I remember I was so uptight. I mean, I was tighter. I was very uptight. I had not... And you're not exactly loosely wound in general. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I think you said it or somebody said, like a hummingbird. You know, I'm wired. But I still had a lot of East Coast... Right, right. You know, I You had the East Coast speed trip going on. That's right. And I was carrying my East Coast cans of whoop-ass from being in the kitchen. Right, You know, in a restaurant kitchen. (laughs) So, um... I remember going to um, the restaurant in downtown Bolinas, and um, this woman just came and sat at my table, totally, un- you know, uninvited, unannounced. She just plopped herself down. She said, um, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> Thinking to myself, "What are you doing at my table?" And I had all my uh, prep lists and. You know, because I was, you know, I was cooking for a retreat and I had to get everything just, you know, T's crossed and I's dotted. And um, I told her what I was here for and I asked her what her name was and she said, Sugar. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, whoa. And that was before, like, you know, Sugar Shock or Sugar Bust or, or Dr. Robert Lustwig or right, anything, right? right, right? right. So um, she was like an oracle slathered in Heinz ketchup, uh-huh. you know, because she was munching on French fries and a burger. And she, I explained what I did, um, and she said, oh, you're a soul nourisher. You're here to transform these people's souls through food. Uh, That's your task. I thought, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. She said, what are you doing with those lists? (laughs) I said, well, I'm preparing. You don't need to prepare. Just go and do what you're meant to do, which is... Isn't that amazing? Oh my God, it was too amazing. I mean, it's really, you know... So that was my introduction, and um, then there was the staff meeting when we get introduced to who we're going to cook for, and I remember being, you know, absolutely scared. Like, 
what do I know about cooking for these people? Um, and I'll never forget going through day one. And I realized that what this woman, that angel had said to me was really my calling, which was how do you get people who might be in very fragile parts of their lives to find nourishment and joy through food? And you know what? I mean, that totally changed my world and my, it was my, I really found my calling here. Hmm. It changed my life. Isn't that amazing? I wonder where sugar is now. <laughs> I don't know. And you know, the other thing is, is that sugar, just to put it in context, you would think that she was like, sort of like, you know, candles and sandals and really whatever, but she was actually very Midwest looking and having this, that kind of wraparound skirt and buttoned-up mm-hmm. shirt and espadrilles, she looked like she came out of, I don't know. So you just never know where your messages are going to come wow. from. Wow. Isn't that an amazing story? Yeah. Wow. And you've been at Commonweal ever since. How many years ago was that, roughly? That was 2000, so it's been 13, 13 years. years. Mm-hmm. What a gift. What a gift for us. Well, what yeah. a gift for me. Yeah. I feel like I grew up here. So... Yeah, I mean, many of us do grow up here. That's, you know, you stick around long enough, ultimately you grow up. You yeah. Know? I'm the exception. I've been here 37 years and I still haven't grown up. But, uh, other, I've watched others grow up around me. So, um, There is so much to say about this cookbook, uh, but let me start with your family. You, you credit your father. Your father, Jay, was in... Uh, he made salad dressings for a living. Yes. And uh, so so cooking is in the family. Oh. Yeah. Absolutely. He would experiment with you guys with new... He was one of the first people to get into green goddess dressing, right? Yes. But he made it with mayo and stuff like that. So, That's right. In fact, you have an updated green goddess dressing in the book, that, you know, taking the mayo and so forth out. Yes. He was... Uh, my father was a true... Uh, influence in my life in the world of food. And he was what I call um, an equal opportunity eater. Mm-hmm. And But more than that, he was the most appreciative eater. So when you cook for somebody who's so appreciative, it's, it really becomes a joy. And so he was, anything my mother put on the table was the best thing. Was your mother a good cook? She was a fantastic cook. And my great grandmother was an amazing cook. And where do you, where do your family come from? What's the the lineage? So, on my father's side of the family, German and Polish. Mm-hmm. My mother's side of the family, Russian and German. Jewish on both sides. Jewish on both sides, with mm-hmm. a marrying in of Italian. Uh huh. And the Italian part of my family, my my great aunt Jerry married a man named Joe Cascarella, who was a baseball player uh-huh. for the um, Philadelphia Athletics. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he was called Crooner Joe, and mm-hmm. he played with the All-Star League in Japan with Babe Ruth. Oh, wow. So we have that lore. Mm-hmm. But his family was, his sisters were amazing cooks, and they were always a part of our group. And indeed, you spent time in Italy studying... 
Italian cooking yes. as well as part of your journey. Yes, yeah. yes. So Jewish with an Italian mix, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Lots of hand gestures. Right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, you mentioned at the at the uh, the the gourmet uh, the Natural Gourmet Institute for Health and Culinary Arts. You mentioned Anne Marie Colbin as as a great influence on you. Huge. She's really a, a real figure in the field. She's she yeah. is the she is the grandmother. If it were not for her, um, I, I feel like she spawned so. She was really talk about pioneer. Mm-hmm. Um, she was out there talking about food and healing when nobody wanted to. When did she start really he- hear it? She really, I think she really started talking about this in the 60s and the 70s. And um, she opened the school in the 70s, like out of her house. What was her distinctive contribution? <laughs> what did she bring to this? Well, I think she, uh, Amory Colbin brought um, the idea of, it wasn't just the cooking, it was the nutrition. I think she was the first, I'll say culinary, she wouldn't say this, but the first culinary translator. I refer to myself as a culinary translator. She had that uncanny ability to marry nutrition and food mm-hmm. together and not keep them separate. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think, just her mm-hmm. contribution. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I, I can't decide which way to do this because I told you that this morning I actually read the book back to front. Uh, and so I can't just, but I think it's actually more rational to uh, uh, to start at the front and work backward, but um, but just to start with um, these these three things: um, the power of yum, the wisdom of our elders, and the science. You don't actually put it in that order at the beginning, but it really struck me that you know you're, you're working with traditions of, of you're, you're working with the wisdom of nutritional traditions from all over the world. Uh, You're working with the science. um, And really, the depth of your science and the references, uh, when you were on Michael Krasny with these two senior scientists from the Buck Institute on Aging, they were treating you with great respect for the depth of of your knowledge, and you were right with them on that. Uh, And I don't know a lot of people who have brought those three things, the science, the wisdom traditions, whole foods, organic foods, um, and then this power of yum. But you do it, I mean, you're not a vegetarian. There's, uh, there's uh, 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 fish, uh, meat, um, dairy in here. Um, so how, do you, how did you arrive, how did you arrive at that specific philosophy of not being vegetarian, for example, of including dairy and uh, meat and fish. Let's just start there. Why, why aren't you a vegetarian? Um, well, um, I'm not a vegetarian because it doesn't... I'd like to call myself a flexitarian. Okay. So um, I'm not a, a flexitarian, so, which means that um, I depending where I might be in the world or what's going on in my life or my body is kind of where I'm going to land with my food. 
So there was a time when I was a vegetarian, um, but it, it wasn't serving me so well. I think there's a right way to be a vegetarian and a wrong way to be a vegetarian. I think when I was a vegetarian, I was, was the wrong, I was the wrong way, you know, because there are a lot of vegetarians, especially young vegetarians who, um, don't eat a lot of vegetables. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, that was, that was in my youth. I like to think, um, I call myself a flexitarian because really the, the plant food makes the, is, is the biggest part of my plate and it's more Mediterranean and maybe the meat is more condiment, more the condiment. Yeah. So, um, and I, I tend to do better that way. So right. that was, that was my choice. Now, just to say how different this cookbook is for many, the, the first chapter is food, nutrition, and your body. I mm -hmm. want to take you on an incredible journey one that involves every cell in your body and every fiber of that most magical of creatures, you. And so you start with this, you know, enthusiasm, which is, you know, part of what is wonderful about you. But then your second heading is epigenetics, right? Okay. You know, so we get right into the science. So what is epigenetics? Well, I am uh, epigenetics. I, usually what I do is I ask people how many people are epigenetic engineers mm -hmm. um, and everybody looks at me weirdly and then I ask um, how many people eat every day mm -hmm. and then I say how many people use a fork and um, and then people raise their hands and then I say congratulations you are an, an epigenetic, epigenetic engineer, engineer because ep the, the epigenetics is really it involves the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the songs that we sing. Everything in the environment affects our bodies and has the ability to shift our gene expression. And the reason why I felt so adamant of starting right there is because this is empowering information that what we put at the end of our fork can really have an influence on our bodies. And that is something that we have just come to in, in the world of science. I, I think it that, used to be environment versus inheritance. Yes. And then we began to understand that an incredibly complex environment affects gene expression. Yes. And gene expression is what actually you become. It's not just the gene, the gene expresses differently, depending, as you said, on nutrition, on what we sing, on stress, on toxins and all those things. And of course, this is epigenetics is at the heart of our work with the collaborative on health and the environment, which you list as one of the sources at the end of the book, because this is uh, what lies behind what we call the ecological paradigm of health or complexity theory, which means that different people get the same disease for different reasons. And conversely, uh, different people exposed to the same environment will develop different diseases, all because of this ecological paradigm of health epigenetics, as you describe it. So I guess this would be sort of more Epicurean. Epicurean epigenetics. Yes, or right. Epicurean genetics. Right, but, right, but yeah, right. but I felt, Michael, that it really was important to, to, um, to talk about. It's kind of odd in a cookbook, I know, but, mm -hmm. it, but in, in that sense that, you know, 
really learning about yourself through what you put in your body is empowering. And I, so I felt like an explanation Mm -hmm. was due there. Um, And then, uh, you know, we talk about the science and the science for the idea of longevity uh, for me was about um, antioxidants and free radicals. And I feel like those two words are sort of bantied about a lot. And, you know, I live sort of in my geeky little nutrition world sometimes. And I think, well, what does that really mean, antioxidants and free radicals? And why should we really care? And so I thought, you know what? There's a, if I were talking to my Nana about about antioxidants and free radicals, she would look at me really weird, but she'd be peeling an apple. And then she would cut the apple in half. And uh, maybe she would be making an apple pie, so she would be then cutting it into different parts and throwing it into a bowl of acidulated water. So water and lemon juice. So right there, it's going into a bath of antioxidants, right? And then the other part of the apple would be sitting on the counter and browning. Mm -hmm. And that's the best definition of oxidative stress. It's like, you know, you're an apple, you're sitting out there with no antioxidants, nothing to protect you, and you start browning inside. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about like foods that are going to help us, you know, maybe shift some gene expression or help us stay healthier or mitigate disease, then we have to think, gosh, everything that we put in from the plant kingdom that has antioxidants and, a, and so many sub-nutrients mm-hmm. um, that, that, you know, antioxidants are just an important part of the book. So it dictated... It's starting there. It's starting there. And, and right away, you credit your colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Jean Wallace, who's been a partner with you, an extraordinary cancer nutritionist. Uh, you do a lot of uh, joint uh, trainings together and so forth. And then you go on. We won't go through this in detail, but you, you have sections of this chapter on gut, liver, and kidneys, um, and then the brain, the heart bones and muscles, the immune system, the respiratory system, and each one, you know, three or four paragraphs, the circulatory system, the nervous system, the endocrine system. But uh, in this this very, uh, you have an amazing genius for making things simple, but in deep grounding in the science. But let's go to the next chapter, the healing power of food. Um, And uh, you start with... uh, a section on why balanced nutrition is a team sport, why whole foods are great team players. But then you come to this amazing section called the culinary pharmacy, which started with Cancer Fighting Kitchen and became, you know, a most popular part of the book. But you have, you know, I don't know what, 10, 15 pages of detailed descriptions of what each food does for you, all based on the science, right? Yes. And I have to say that um, that's always the most challenging part of the book because my co-author, Matt Edelson, 
who is a science and medical writer who um, is in Baltimore, and I'm here, and we work on this, and it's it has to be, we have this criteria of the studies, and it can't be just something that you find on the internet. It has to be these peer-reviewed studies and these journals, which are very, you know, dense. And so we found ourselves, um, you know, we're, I guess by the time we get to like, uh, um, by the time we maybe get to dates, already we're in D's. We're like, oh my gosh, we've looked at so many studies and we're only on D, you know? And, um, but, but it's people really enjoy that part of the book because it's neat to know like what these foods do for us. You know, I, I think like apples, for example, they're like the mini culinary pharmacy in and of themselves because they do so many things. So, yes. Or just take one example. Talk about chocolate for a minute. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I don't eat chocolate. I love chocolate. But the only reason I don't eat chocolate is that I discover that it makes my anxiety threshold lower. And when I figured that out, and I just adore chocolate, you know, dark chocolate, obviously, you know, no milk in it, all that right. good stuff. But for me personally, it, and as you know, one of the parts of epigenetics is how incredibly unique each of us is. That's exactly So right. for me, two of the wonderful things that you talk about, chocolate and green tea, uh, uh, um, you know, chocolate makes me more easily anxious. Green tea gives me heart palpitations. Asparagus I can't eat because it contributes to gout, but cherry juice absolutely blocks the gout for years now. So, you know, each of us, if you really get into this, you know, as Roger Williams called it, our biochemical individuality. And so you have these wonderful guidelines, but then you can't just take them as an absolute recipe because you have to experiment on your own pharmacological response. Right, and I call that finding your own GPS. Exactly. Because it is really, really, really important, I think, for people to understand just what you're saying that, you know, I may come up with 16 foods for a variety of reasons, but everybody's list of foods that really works for them is really based on their individual makeup. And Michael, what I think is interesting is this science of nutrigenomics, where in 10 years, um, they will be able to look at your blood and tell you what your, really your personal nutrition is, just in terms of the foods that really work really well. And they're going to be very different for, from everybody. And I wonder what's going to happen to all these fad diet books. That's interesting. <laughs> now, speaking of your culinary GPS, you have a list on page 43, Discovering Your Culinary GPS. What are your favorite foods? Why do you like them? What are your comfort foods? If you were stuck on a desert island, what's the one food you would take? What kinds of food do you crave and why? So you have a whole set of, of these. Why is it so important for somebody to discover their culinary GPS? You know, I came, I came up with this list, and mm -hmm. Saja Greenwood and I used this in the Cancer, cancer Health, Health Program. Program. And, and it was in the, 
it was in the Cancer Fighting Kitchen. And I discovered that it's very important when people are thinking about foods or shifting the way that they're eating, that they really think about what, where did I come from? What do I like? And like, not even like, um, and when I say, when, if you're banished to a like desert island, I don't want you to tell me that you're going to take broccoli because I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> I know I wouldn't, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like giving permission to really have people think about what do you like? Are you a crispy, crunchy person? Or are you a smooth, creamy person? Because if you start thinking about yourself in a personal way and your relationship to food, then you're going to find those wonderful whole foods that resonate with you. Say more about crispy, crunchy. What are the categories? Like you said, smooth, crispy, crunchy. Right. Are there other categories like that or are they? Well, like some people like um, salty. Salty. Right. Some people have a sweet tooth. So this goes to FAST. This goes to the uh, acronym FAST, which is um, fat. um, How does it go here? Fat. Fat, acid, salt, and sweet, right? Yes. So are they the... That isn't quite the crispy, crunchy doesn't fall under that, but no. salty, sweet does. Right, but right. but actually texture and how we right. perceive texture right. definitely plays into how we perceive and taste food. Right, I get it. So under fast, uh, you see, I hadn't thought about this stuff before this way, but uh, you know, fats, acid, uh, uh, salt, and sweet, right? Yes. And so in each category you then have this uh, amazing little segment. You know, olive oil is on the lead for fats, lemon juice for acids, sea salt for salt, and grade B maple syrup for sweet because it has a mellower profile and more minerals in it. Yes. But then on the next page, you go on to have uh, more possibilities. So it's not just olive oil, but it's nut oils, ghee, sesame oil, avocado nuts, and so on and so forth. Each of these categories is, is uh, built out a bit. And then you have something on umami. Say a little about umami. Why is umami important? Well, umami is important because it's part of taste and flavor. And, and it's that basically umami is Japanese, and it, it's that savory, elusive taste kind of like a brothy, meaty taste. And I thought to, to share some of the foods that are umami foods um, would be helpful for people. Like, um, like carrots is an umami food, and kombu is an umami food, and Parmesan cheese, and <coughs> pomegranates, and potatoes, and shiitake mushrooms, and tomatoes, and I think that's why people have such a love affair with ketchup. And there's a debate about whether it's a taste or a sensation. Yes, yes. But whatever it is, it's uh-huh. that, that it, it's part of that idea of bringing out the most flavor in, in, in a food. Do nutrition scientists accept the existence of umami or not? Um, you know, that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. Certainly, um, the Japanese science does, mm-hmm. and certainly, like certainly, 
I think chefs are just starting to come around to it. So this is fairly new. Mm-hmm. Fairly new, this discussion of umami. So miso is on the list. Which yes. Of course, and kombu. Yes. Green tea, eggs, chicken, beef. It's, it's an interesting list. And then you get into the incredible area of, of spices, right? And uh, there's a whole section of the cookbook on herbs and spices. Um, but you have these global flavor prints, Asian, Indian, Latin, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, and Moroccan, each with its own set. Well, I think that's very important. I think that spices get short shrift. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the keys to really good um, health-supportive and nutrient-dense eating really involves using spices because they're, they're incredible medicine. And, uh, and they are really being studied under the microscope for a myriad of things. Plus, they make your food so yummy. And, and they all serve a role. Each spice serves a role. And taste, as, as I understand you, taste and appearance of food are actually extraordinary guideposts to nutritional benefit. Yeah. It's that, the, you know... My, what an amazing thing. Yeah. yeah. So, you know... Um, the way something looks, like if you go to the farmer's market and you see all this color, for me, it's like um, my paint box or uh, my Crayola crayons. You know, it's, but when you look at the, the, the color of food just like popping out at you, um, you, you can be sure it's got amazing nutrition in it and probably amazing taste. And Great taste and great nutrition have to sit together, um, or else if they don't, then you're, it's just going to be you know, you may not be totally fully nourished, or you know, find your sustainable nourishment. Mm-hmm. So, for me, that's the hardest part as somebody learning this stuff. In other words, you know, I'm I can cook fundamentally for myself very easily, but my wife has all these spices sort of jumbled together and I always have to ask her to season it, right? Um, and I'm trying to figure out, I mean, I can go through this book, but as for a beginner, how would, how would you suggest that I learn to use uh, spices and herbs? Well, for, let's take your quinoa. Right. Okay. So um, you could, uh, you could Rinse your quinoa, and then um, you can put it in. In you can put it in some broth or or water, and throw a cinnamon stick uh-huh. in your quinoa, mm-hmm. and you could throw a piece of fresh ginger in your quinoa, uh-huh. and a pinch of salt. Uh-huh. And even though it's going to be your breakfast, that salt acts to release the flavors of the quinoa. Mm. And it also is a catalyst to get all like the ginger and the cinnamon going. Mm. So you cook your quinoa, you've got this base Mm -hmm. underneath. And then already you've got, so then you've got your quinoa and then you usually put blueberries on it. And um, you could put um, a little bit of, if you put like 
some lemon zest mm. or orange zest or a squeeze of lemon. What's lemon zest? It's the outside of the lemon. Okay. And if you take a tool, fancy tool, which we call the microplaner, but, um, and Charles, I'm sure you have one in your kitchen, and you just went like this across the lemon, and you'd get the zest, which has an incre incredible nutrient value, but also intense flavor. Or you just took a squeeze of lemon, and you put it in there. It would just all of a sudden, you know, lemons are like little Pixar animated characters. It would make that quinoa just pop like that. You know what you should do? <laughs> this is actually a good suggestion. Yes. You should create a, an app uh, that would enable us to punch quinoa and it would give us a list of the herbs and spices that would go with it. You could do it right out of this cookbook and it could, your vision of a cookbook, you know, a cook on every corner. You know, just imagine if we all had Rebecca Katz's app <laughs> on our iPhones. Isn't that something worth thinking about? It and, is something you know, worth it. Yeah. I have to give that to my tech-minded husband yeah, to work right. on with yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. So then once you've gotten through, uh, and of course you focus on why does organic matter, which is uh, uh, not something we need to talk about here. Um, uh, but you, your first chapter when you get into the cookbook is on life-enhancing soups and broths. And boy, oh boy, your magic mineral broth has been so essential to so many people with cancer I know and so many people I know who are just going through uh, digestive difficulties or need nourishment. Uh, just talk, I mean, that's your, your real magic. Talk about the magic mineral broth. Well, I have to say that if there was anything that I contributed to the culinary canon, mm -hmm. that would be it. Mm -hmm. And it took... 65 gallons, a few rotations of the earth, I'm sure. Um, I don't know. It was, it's one of those, it's, it's a bit of culinary alchemy, to tell you the truth. I must, it was like there was a quorum of grandmothers that was channeling through me because I've got the weirdest things in there. And um, I tried to change it for this book. I thought, you know, I've had the magic mineral broth in, in, the other two books, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna change it, and I did, and it really was bad. And this is when I was well into developing my soups, and my recipe tester Catherine McConkey, who I call her the Oracle of Taste, because you know she ta she's she goes through every one of my recipes with a fine tooth comb, and I get comments back to her in from her in orange. And she said, this is not a Rebecca Katz soup. What did you do? And I said, I, I, I changed the magic mineral broth formula. And she goes, oh, well, you got, we got it. We got it. We got to start again. <laughs> Go back. And instead of taking, so this is what I learned. I can never take anything away from magic mineral broth. I can add to it but I can never take away. Mm. So this base formula, um, I, it's like, I don't, 
it's surprising the stories that people tell me about the broth and uh, what it does and the reactions to it are amaze me. But I think really what makes it work is that it's sort of like whatever is in chicken soup. It's um, although you have a chicken version and a vegetarian. And it, that's right. right. I think. You know, broths go back to the very beginning of when there was fire. And I think there's something uh, about this broth in particular. Um, I could say, well, it's the sweet potatoes in the broth. I could say it's the kombu in the broth. I could say it's the, you know, uh, the juniper berries or the allspice berries or the peppercorns or whatever. I'm not sure. But something about the combination in that broth makes it, first of all, when it's simmering, it's like aromatherapy. So it's already getting into your olfactory senses, which is a big part of our nourishment. But it's, I don't, I know that I was going for a mineral broth and I was rebelling against some of the mineral broths that were very bitter. And so I went to other vegetables that I felt were really um, full of, of really nutrient-dense properties. And the rest is alchemy. You make it sometimes in your 24-quart stock pot. <laughs> and you say uh, that, that you say uh, if you were asked if an alien dropped in from Mars and said to me, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> will leave you your two favorite kitchen tools. You say, I'd grab my wooden soup spoon and jump into my 24-quart stock pot. You said, don't laugh, I fit. So, <laughs> for those who are listening just to the sound version of this, that gives them a little sense of, of who you are. Um, but we keep, uh, Charles makes the mineral broth and keeps it frozen in our, our fridge on a regular basis. It's, it's so delicious. And I'll only pick one other soup. Uh, 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 your velvety Mediterranean gazpacho with avocado cream. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's uh, really lovely, really lovely. So uh, I also want to mention your bento box miso soup. I mean, it's just wonderful list of things. But then from there, you move on to, um, to the next chapter is, is vegetables. And uh, again, uh, let's, let's just start out... Uh, let's start with kale because we grow a lot of kale in Bolinas and it's a bitter vegetable but we're overwhelmed with kale it grows like wildfire out here so what do you do with kale what's your Latin kale recipe <laughs> so this is where herbs and spices um, come in and um, so I decided it's like okay well I'm going to do greens in this book because they're you know, they're essential. And I thought, well, I'm going to take them around the world and I'm going to go Latin. I'm going to start there. And so the, the key here, besides the fact that it's, uh, it's some onions that are sauteed in my favorite, in olive oil, um, and some garlic, I take some cumin seeds and, you know, this is like right out of the Claire Hart playbook, by the way. Claire Hart, who's here being the chef for the cancer health program, most of what Commonweal 
most Commonweal cooking is done by Claire Hart, and uh, she's a genius. So, right. So and you guys it, work together. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. okay. So this would be right out of Claire's playbook. Right. So you're toasting the seeds right. in that olive oil until they pop, and there's this aroma, and then you're going to put the kale in, and then the kale starts to dance around in those herbs and spices, and then um, you just take some 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 lime juice and a little bit of lemon juice and a little bit of that zest I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And then I put just a teeny drop of that grade B maple syrup, which um, I call, which actually one of my assistants calls a drape of mape, uh -huh. <laughs> which I love. So you just put a little drape of mape. Those Canadians... And those people from Vermont, you know, they just know how to use that maple syrup. And then I uh, top them off with um, toasted pepitas or pumpkin seeds. And it's uh, a beautiful dish. And, you know, lemon actually will calm down and take some of that bitter astringency out uh -huh. of kale. And in fact, earlier in the book, you have a guide. If something's too sweet, this is what you do to make it less so. If it's too bitter, you do this. So there's like a, a little thumb guide. That's to, the fast. Yeah, the fast, what you do in the kitchen to change yeah. things around. So coming to grains, um, you talk about quinoa, you talk about uh, tabbouleh, you talk about farro, you talk about brown rice um, and soba noodles. But I wanted to ask you, I have friends who tell me that almost all grains, I don't know if this is true, that's why I'm asking, uh, that it's usually a benefit to soak grains before you cook them. Is that true? Absolutely. Why is that so? Um, when you soak the grain, you are ridding the grain of, especially things like, maybe not so much quinoa, though to soak it is fine, um, but especially rice, farro, any of those kinds, or, or buckwheat, if you soak them, overnight with the squeeze of lemon juice, um, you're ridding the grain of this outer um, substance, which is a phytate, which, kinds of, which kind of gets in the way of, of good digestion. Oh, really? And you're also softening the grain mm -hmm. so that it takes a lot less time for it to cook and also makes the grain easier to digest and more uh, readily, uh, the nutrients more bioavailable to the body. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big grain soaker believer. Mm -hmm. And I give a note at the beginning, it's like soak your grains. Mm -hmm. So, and you can do it for one hour, four hours, eight hours, mm -hmm. but it'll cut the cooking time tremendously. Mm -hmm. And for those of us, uh, let's talk about gluten sensitivity for a minute. You know, it's really fascinating. And Saja Greenwood is here. Um, a physician who, as I mentioned, works with you in the Cancer Help Program and also publishes a regular letter on, on nutrition. Um, but I wonder why there's so much gluten sensitivity. And there's a school of thought that it has to do with what we've done to wheat in terms of um, engineering it or changing it around. What is your view about why so many people have gluten sensitivity? Let's just start there. Well, I have a gluten sensitivity. Yeah. Um, and uh, I definitely believe mm -hmm. that the way that we, first of all, the wheat in this country 
has a probably 100% more gluten, which is a protein that makes bread and baked goods spongy. And we like our Wonder Bread in this country, so you get an idea. Um, and it's also because it's in everything. Wheat is added to everything. So it's like we're saturated with it. Far too much gluten. Far too much gluten. So the gluten load is Very way hot. too high. And then the way that there is so much gluten in the wheat, and then um, also whenever you mess with Mother Nature, mm -hmm. then the body does not recognize it, and it doesn't know what to do with it. And so it's like the foreign invader versus the way um, there are there are towns in Europe that you know use weight, use wheat in ways that we don't here and mill it from a very uh, traditional way. And there are pe people who are gluten sensitive that can go over to certain parts of Europe and eat a piece of bread and not have the same reaction. You know, I find when I travel in Europe, just in Europe, I don't respond as badly to wheat over there. I wonder if, I mean, just in general, I don't. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really such a difference. Yeah. It's a tremendous difference. Is there, can you get the original wheat over here? I mean, is, is it available? You know what, I'm not quite sure, although mm -hmm. um, I, did, I, I did hear I, um, from a book talk that I gave a couple of nights ago that somebody said that there was a baker in San Rafael mm -hmm. in Marin County that was using a, a wheat mm -hmm. and that um, and the way he was grinding it, people who usually were very reactive were not reactive to his bread. I want to find that man. Now, <laughs> I know that quinoa does not have gluten, right? right? And... Uh, and what about farro, which I don't know much about? Well, farro is the only glutinous grain that I include mm -hmm. in the book. Um, farro is the absolute ancient grain. Uh -huh. Ancient, it's the grandmother of wheat. So it's um, not processed. It's a whole grain. It's got a very nutty taste. Um, mm -hmm. It's very popular in Italy. And bulgur wheat does not have gluten? Does not have gluten in it. Oh, right. No, bulgur wheat does, but okay. I use buckwheat oh, use buck in wheat. the tabbouleh. Okay. So that's why it's not your average tabbouleh. So it. It's using buckwheat. I get it. I get it. So then you move on from there uh, to protein. And uh, uh, so, again, you, you cover sardines, eggs, halibut, and you've talked about uh, why why you include these um, foods in the diet. Um, and I know, you know, a lot of cancer patients, um, you know, decide that they have cancer and so they should be vegetarian and so on. And, and sometimes they, um, they get malnourished because they're not getting enough uh, protein. protein. Yeah. You know? And, and it's, it's a useful corrective to remind people that you know, uh, if, if you're going to be vegetarian, you kind of have to work at it to get the protein, right? Yes, you really do. And if you are immune compromised and sick, you may really need some fish or animal protein or egg protein. Yes. Yeah. Is that a fair summary? That is a very fair yeah. summary. Okay. Yeah. 
And we, Saja and I um, spend a lot of time yeah. um, in what we call our culinary confessional yeah. at Commonweal. <laughs> <laughs> Giving permit people permission. It's not even just vegetarian. They think they should be vegan. Right. And that's even more difficult. Right. So. Right. Um, and then uh, you get to nibbles and nauseous, right? <laughs> and so these are the, the taste treats. And um, let me just pick one, the gluten-free blueberry mini muffins. Talk, talk to us about what the gluten-free blueberry mini muffins are like. Uh, well, they're cute because okay. they are mini. Uh-huh. And um, they're great. They're, they're made out of almond flour. And so you've got this beautiful little... Uh, protein, dense, good, healthy fat in this little muffin with those beautiful, plump blueberries in them. And you don't need much. That's the great thing. It's like, I think I made a reference um, that when I was growing up in New York, this is before I knew it was gluten intolerant, but I, they have these big oversized muffins, you know, those muffin tops. You know, and they, you know, part of living in New York was either having your bagel and coffee or one of these huge muffins, and then you would be like, uh, at the end of the, you know. But the little mini muffins are just like the perfect little protein boosting treat, and um, they're not very sweet, they're just right. And almond, I was really interested in learning about almond flour because I love almonds, I eat them all the time. And, but you can just take uh, a cup of almonds and blend them down into a flour, and you say it works as a flour. Absolutely. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah very cool. So chapter nine uh, is dollops of yum. <laughs> and um, this is, and, and you, may, you really make a case that, uh, you know, you say uh, uh, dollops might seem like a flourish, a nice but hardly necessary accessory. I beg to differ. So why are dollops of yum necessary? What, what's the deal? Well, you know what? These are the blings uh-huh. for the food. Uh-huh. You know? It's like this is the, this is the absolute accessory. Uh-huh. Um, so let's say you have, okay, let's take your salmon, right. okay, that you eat for dinner. Um, or let's say you were even having a grain uh-huh. and you wanted to jazz it up. Uh-huh. So there's um, one dollop is this parsley mint drizzle. And all it is is um, parsley and mint, a little bit of olive oil, lemon juice, and sea salt. And you put it in a little um, uh, Cuisinart mini prep or a little blender or whatever, and you waz it, and boom, you've got this little dollop, and you just... You just drizzle it over your fish. Not only are you getting like this bright pop, Mm -hmm. right? And it's a surprise in your mouth Mm -hmm. and it wakes up your taste buds. But, you know, there's so much nutrition in these herbs, Mm -hmm. right? So you're getting this like, you know, like sort of like I want to say this little high from these herbs of, you know, parsley and cilantro and mint and basil, which are just like eating oxygen and they're so good for us. And they just, so the dollops are, I feel like, gosh, if you're not a cook and you're more of an assembler, Mm -hmm. that the dollops is actually a great chapter to start with because that you can make these things and you can keep them in your freezer Uh and they last in your refrigerator for like five days and you can just you know 
it will make anything that's kind of uh, perk up. Did you know that food, sex, and humor all light up the same part of the brain? <laughs> Did you know that? I, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful fact. Yeah, yeah. So the last chapter is the chapter on desserts, and as I... Oh, no, wait a minute. You've got a, a chapter on the tonics and elixirs. Yeah, let's not miss that. So uh, these were the drinks, um, and they're, they're wonderful. But let's go to Greg's Morning Protein Shake, which is named for your husband. Yes. What, what's that one about? Well, my, my husband, we had, to get, he, we had to get him out of this routine of eating uh, dried cereal and milk um, because he wasn't, he, he, he wasn't doing well with it. And he needs to be able to make his own breakfast um, because I will only go so far, you know? <laughs> uh, so, and I'm thinking about what, it, what is it that he does during the day? And he's got a big brain like you. And he has to, he's, he's thinking all the time. And um, he had to have something that, that was going to last. So, um, we came up with this shake. It was actually inspired by a very dear nutritionist friend of mine, Kathy Swift, who's an amazing nutritionist. And it has rice protein powder, blueberries. Um, it can be almond milk or rice milk or whatever your, it could be even be coconut milk if you needed to uh, put calories on. Um, and Greg uses sun butter, but you could use almond butter, and there's flax seed in there. So you've got a, a tremendous amount of fiber, some really good healthy fat. You've got the dark berries in there, and, um, you know, he gets to play with the Vitamix every day, mm -hmm. which is the uh, Ferrari of blenders, and he loves gadgets. Mm -hmm. So he gets to put all of this in the blender and just waz it up, and, you know, it's like the air, it's like an aircraft lifting off. <laughs> and, you know, and then he gives the spoon, which has the almond butter on it. Mm -hmm to um, our puppies. Uh -huh. So they each get a chance uh -huh. to lick the spoon. But what's so great about it is that it levels his blood sugar out. What kind of puppies do you have? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> I have um, two Portuguese water dogs. One is nine years old, and her name is Bella. And she was a canine cancer scent dog wow. before she got fired. From Michael Brofman? Yes, from yeah. Michael Brofman, but she got fired for her lack of work ethic <laughs> um, when she was about five and a half or six. And so she's been out of work ever since. <laughs> and then uh, we have a new addition, her niece, Lola, who just turned one. Bella has a particular fondness for carrots and sweet potatoes. So she has a recipe in this book and a recipe in the Cancer Fighting Kitchen. Uh -huh. And um, Lola is uh, very fond of kale. Uh. And they are my muses <laughs> in the kitchen. And they're both Portuguese water. And they're both Portuguese Isn't water. Isn't that what dogs. the Obamas have? I yes. They do. Yeah. But yes. you got yours first, right? But I got I got mine first. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I think we think that Lola is um, 
is Bo Obama's half-sister. Oh, related. Yeah. <laughs> so we're like this close. <laughs> Expecting an invitation any day now. So the last chapter, which is where I began the book, is with uh, Sweet Bites. And, um, and, and let's go to the triple chocolate date tort. Tell us about the triple chocolate date tort. Well, gosh, I really, you know... I love this recipe because, again, I'm using, I'm breaking the rules and not, first of all, I am, I have to, I have to use a qualifier. I am so not a baker. So anything has to be very easy to do. And I enlisted uh, the, uh, the, the help of my dear friend, Wendy Reamer, who is not only an amazing chocolatier, but a brilliant baker, and I said, listen, we have to develop these desserts, but we're taking away the trifecta of baking. So you, we can't use flour, we, white flour, we can't use white sugar, and we can't use butter. And she looked at me like I had three heads. So um, the chocolate date tort is using dates as the sweetener, which I love dates because... It's like fiber and sweet all in one. So they are like immediately like checking each other. And it's great. They're like little police, but they're real, they're like legal sweets. And then um, <laughs> almond meal again and chocolate. Mm -hmm. And like I think it's like not only chocolate, but raw cacao in there. And then we top it with a raspberry pomegranate glaze like a drizzle which is the next recipe yes yeah. yes and that's just insane is cacao the most uh, the healthiest form of yes chocolate? it's the healthiest form because you're really getting every single amount of antioxidant so what's if you're a chocolate freak and you're trying to eat the healthiest chocolate and cacao is the healthiest form how can you make it palatable uh, in an easy way. Well, okay, so you can use cacao in um, shakes. Okay. Um, like there's a shake that I have in the book that's a blueberry, um, ch chocolate, blueberry, cherry-laced smoothie. Oh, cool. That, <laughs> that sounds like my kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like my kind of thing. And the last uh, sections of the book, which should not be ignored, uh, first of all, I'm sure it's a very brief version of the bibliography that yeah. you worked with. I mean, uh, there's a f fabulous index, and uh, environmental resources, nutrition resources, farmer's markets, grocery chains, sources for specialty ingredients, kitchen equipment. Um, um, you know, Rebecca, this is just a wonderful, wonderful book. And... Um, how is it being received? I heard that uh, the uh, Journal of the uh, Association of Retired People just what had an interview with you and some of your recipes in it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that should get it out there. Yes. Yeah. And um, the book has been received with with a, a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I I think it hits you know it, it hits a, a chord with people and. So, yes, it's, it's, mm -hmm. we're already into our second printing. Wow. So, you know, that that's, that's mm -hmm. bodes well. Mm -hmm. I, I've found 
after I published Choices in Healing, that at some level I really learned what the book was about by talking about it after I wrote it. And I wondered, as you've talked about the book, now that you've written it, what have you learned that goes beyond what you knew when you wrote the book? Is there anything that has kind of come to you just from the experience of of talking about it, of putting it out there? Yes. I think um, one of the things that happens, uh, for me anyway, is there's, by the time I've, I've done the recipes and then I go into the, the tedium mm-hmm. of all the things that you have to do and the checks and balances of, you know, getting it ready for press and then it's mm-hmm. gone away for a while and it's like you don't even think about it and then it comes back to you mm-hmm. and it's sort of like, oh, wow. It's like looking at it with a brand new set of eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think the more I talk about the book... For me, it's more of how people, the questions people ask, the reactions people ask, and sort of like I'm learning from other people's experience of the book, mm-hmm. which is a great learning. Right. It comes back to you and through their eyes. Through their yeah. eyes. And it's like that's such a... a a gift. You know, this book made me aware, I never thought about it before, of the art of making a cookbook. So, for example, uh, the design, you know, the beauty of the design and the beauty of the images of the food. And then each recipe, uh, you have this little paragraph, kind of a little kind of story of, you know, what the what it meant to you. You know, like in your roasted asparagus salad, it's, you can learn a lot sitting on the tailgate of a pickup truck, you know. You know, that's where my buddy Chris from Zuckerman Farms used to sit me down and teach me about all things asparagus and so on. So each one has a little story. And then you've got the recipe. And then you have these little notes, uh, you know, peeling the asparagus gets rid of the stringy, sometimes tough outer layer. And, uh, and each recipe, you know, so there's a, there's a, how can I say it? There's a folk narrative that runs through the book and the little things, and then there are the recipes, and then there are little science notes, or who knew, sautéing cabbage helps its fiber bind with a bile that attaches itself to cholesterol, increasing its efficiency and sweeping cholesterol out of the body. So there are all these little moving pieces, and you've just put them together. I don't think I've been this enthusiastic about a book that I've <laughs> got a conversation in, but it's it's... It just maybe it's because I don't read cookbooks, right? So, but but the art, not only the art of cooking and the art of being a culinary translator, but the art of creating a book that that speaks to a non-cook like me and makes me actually want to get better at this. You know, I told you before the talk. I thought this may change my my life, and uh, I'm very grateful. <laughs> So let's open it up. There's a wonderful audience here, and we'd love to hear some comments and questions. Yes? I have a question. I didn't hear anything about nuts, so I'm curious what you think about them, and you think they should be used toasted or raw? Can you repeat the questions? Yes. Um, So the question was, what do I think about nuts, and are they better toasted or raw? 
Um, it depends what you're using them for. Um, some people like to soak nuts. Some people, uh, yeah, some people like to soak nuts. Some people like to eat them raw, which is great um, when you're toasting them. Um, you just have to be careful that you don't disturb their volatile oils. So you just have to watch them very closely. But when you toast or roast anything, you bring out a lot of flavor. So I'm all for like, however you enjoy eating them is the way you should eat them. And I think, uh, because we hear a lot about like, oh, we should only do it a certain way. So, yeah, or that they, when you cook, when you roast them, they you ruin, they become poisonous. No. Yeah, no, they don't. Uh, if you burn them, they do. But you wouldn't want to eat them that way. Other question? Yes, right here. You. Yeah. Um, I love Michael Pollan's book, In Defense of Food. And also, there's another related book, The End of Illness, by an oncologist. So in that book, I'm curious, he, he sort of challenges the whole science of nutrition and supplements and talks about the corruption and gives a fascinating social history of it and why they're always saying, oh, now vitamin E is bad and how the FDA has been corrupt and just how it's, go back to food, you know? And so since you're a scientist of nutrition, I was just wondering, is he talking there about a different kind of nutrition, like supplements, nutritionism, experts? He's really saying, beware of experts. And yes. Um, I'm, I'm going to repeat the question. Um, Michael, Michael Pollan, in his book, In Defense of Food, makes a point of talking about... Um, that we've become a little bit over-nutritionalized, and he certainly points to supplements and things like that. And this is what I have to say. Nutritional analysis leads to culinary paralysis. There are two different kinds of nutritionists. There are people like me, I study the nutrition of food. So I am always looking at food from um, a place of nourishment and healing. Um, I don't really look at supplements. I think that supplements uh, have a role in very individual cases and um, that there are nutritionists that are absolutely trained in clinical nutrition. And if you are, for example, if you are very ill and you need a little help, then you'll be guided correctly. But I study more of the wisdom of food through its science and the overall wisdom of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm in line with the way he thinks. I just want to add on that point because we have friends, you and I both, who would differ with you on that. And the way they would differ is that they would say that the field of functional medicine right. uh, has discovered that uh, particularly living in the modern world where so many even whole foods have been denatured yep. or cooked and you know created in ways that that they don't have their original nutritional content or under all kinds of stress we didn't have before and right. so on and so forth so that um, so that although it is absolutely true that the supplement industry is terribly corrupted right. and frequently does not have what's said to be in it and so on and so forth yet uh, there may really be um, 
nutritional, the nutritional optimal, optimal nutrition uh, may require things that people do not actually get. Right. And so we, we, don't, we don't want to have that debate now, but I just want to mark it right. as a legitimate debate that people have. Yes, and I think really, uh, I just want to add this footnote. When I mentioned that, that I think the nutritional supplementation has to be very personalized. It's personal and specific. And specific yeah. versus sometimes when you go to the, the you know, GNC or whatever and you're just, you know, there's just a lot of, just like there's, real, there's really good food mm-hmm. um, or they're really processed foods, they're yeah. really processed supplements or they're really good supplements. So I think that's... Yeah, exactly. That's a very important question. Yes. Other questions? Yes, please. I was talking to a girlfriend yesterday about breakfast shakes, and um, she was saying that she had recently heard that because enzymes are released from chewing, that ingesting shakes for breakfast on a regular basis isn't really, perhaps, doesn't quite have the nutritional value that one might think it has. So I just wondered what you have to say about that. I'm gonna I'm gonna call that scientifically a little incorrect. Let me. And may I add one thing to this? She was talking as well about green shakes. You know, because people are really into green shakes, like using kale and 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 things like that. So okay. So the the question is, does um, that there are certain enzymes that we release when we chew that help us digest food, um, and the, the idea of the breakfast shake or having shakes all the time, uh, it kind of, uh, we're not really, the, the food isn't as nutritious. Um, I, I kind of beg to differ, and I'll tell you why. Because if you said to me, if you were juicing all the time, then I would, then I would raise a flag. But when you are blending something up in a, a blender, what the blender is doing actually is it's starting to break down what can otherwise be very difficult to digest. So it's actually the blender is like the teeth that's starting the digestion process. And if you were to chug down that shake really quickly, then yes, um, maybe. But if you take time to really kind of like, you know, sip the shake, then you're not going to run into problems. But yes, I know there's like a trend to the whole green smoothie and everything else. Um, I guess I would say any way you can get your fruits and vegetables in you. I think you get really technical when you start talking about how many enzymes are released when you eat. Mm. So... Like um, but the juices, you said, not the juices. Yeah. Well, because the juices, you're losing the fiber. When you are having something blended, the whole food is blended. So you're getting that fiber. So you're not getting this big sugar surge versus juicing, you know, which has a place, but not necessarily all the time. I'd like to turn to Saja Greenwood and Claire Hart for a moment. Uh, Saja Greenwood, as I mentioned, you work uh, a lot with Rebecca and have studied nutrition as a physician for many years. As you've listened to Rebecca, any thoughts or reflections come to you? Well, just this thing that, that, was, that you just brought up about, um, about the shake, about the whole food shake. 
I totally agree with what you said about letting it <clears throat> rest in your mouth a little bit. It will call forth saliva. Saliva has enzymes that will digest protein, starch, and fat, and so the whole process will not be subverted uh, if you do it right, which is the whole food and doing it slowly. And a lot of times those, uh, <clears throat> those whole food shakes are rather thick. I eat mine with a spoon. <laughs> Sajja, you've, you've studied Jeff Bland's functional medicine in some depth, so on this question of supplements, what would you say? I'd say that um, there are, well, I agree with you that there are uh, a, a huge number of supplement companies, some of which are questionable, some of which are very good. There's a very good website that you can um, join for a year for some $35 um, <clears throat> called Consumer Labs, where they evaluate uh, supplements for having um, the stated amount of, of the product in it, not too little, not too much, and having contaminants such as lead or other heavy metals which you wouldn't want. So that's a good thing to look at or to find someone who has that, has that website, who paid for that website, to look at. And the other thing, I, I, I agree that it should be uh, personalized and um, I think that one supplement that has been shown to be uh, very uh, helpful for many, many people as a probiotic. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yes, you can get the same by starting your day with a, a really good yogurt or kefir, uh, but a lot of people don't start their day that way, and, and um, probiotics have, are being increasingly shown not only to help individuals um, individuals with resistance to a number of diseases, but also being shown to be very helpful in gastrointestinal diseases of all kinds. So um, it's a complex subject and um, a very interesting one. Yeah. And Claire Hart, from a point of view of a amazing cook and, and uh, and deeply, deeply connected to the whole organic food community in Bolinas and the People's uh, Store, our local co-op, where you really have played a central role. As you listen to Rebecca, any reflections? Oh, yeah. I love Rebecca. I love Rebecca's thoughts on, you know, whole foods and getting the real yum to people. I mean... Uh, your books are amazing. I'm just so glad to have them around. I use them all the time. I really had fun making that um, edamame, wasabi. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those were great. And there's always just great little tricks you have in there, and I appreciate it. And you're right, we're on the same page, you know. We come from a place of um, valuing why, why did people eat those corn and beans forever? Because <laughs> it works. And so um, not getting off into just fats, but really to the whole food and what's, you know, what's grown mm -hmm. here, what's grown now. Yeah. Rebecca, two last questions. Uh, one is, uh, do you walk your talk? Do you eat what you tell other people to eat? <laughs> <laughs> that 
that answer would be yes. <laughs> and it sometimes drives me crazy. It's like, you know, sometimes I wish I could go off the, you know, off the beaten track and, you know, but I, I would say uh, yes, and that's because my my body is so acclimated to it. Um, I envy, and also because I'm a bit of a little delicate hothouse flower in terms of my digestion, so I envy sometimes people like my husband who's got the gut of steel and could like eat anything. And I, you know, sometimes I just wish I want to come back as scotch in another life so I can. <laughs> and that partially answers my final question, which is. Uh, is this how you cook at home? Yes. Mm -hmm. This is how I cook at home. Although, again, bringing up Greg, he would say, you know, um, we, gosh, you never make those sweet potato bars or you never make that chocolate date tort. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, so yes, I, I do. But it's interesting because I always ask I always think, oh my God, what am I going to make for dinner tonight? So even though I've written three cookbooks, I'm still always thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner tonight. Rebecca Katz, founder of the Healing Kitchen Institute at Commonweal, author of The Longevity Kitchen, uh, with an introduction by Dr. Andrew Weil, a beloved member of the Commonweal community. Thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. <laughs>